Hey, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. If you're new with us, my name is Ryan, uh, and I serve here as one of the pastors. And I just want to welcome you uh, and let you know how grateful we are that you're here and that you chose uh, to gather with us together this morning. Uh, if you've got your Bible, make your way to Luke chapter 24, the Gospel of Luke uh, chapter 24. Uh, if you're new with us and you don't have a Bible, good news, we've got one for you. Over there on that table, uh, there's some hardback black ones. Uh, so you can go grab one of those and keep it. That's our gift to you uh, as a church. But Luke 24, next week, we're going to jump back into our series through the book of Genesis. And over the next few months, uh, close out and finish the book of Genesis, looking at the life of Joseph. But this week, uh, we're going to spend one more week in the Gospel of Luke, looking at this conversation that Jesus has with two of his disciples uh, on the road to Emmaus. And I, I'm really, really excited uh, about this passage because these, this is just one of those passages that's really uh, so foundational both to me and, and how I think about ministry and preaching and life and really uh, to us as a church. I mean, it explains so much about why we try to preach the way that we do and why we try to structure our gatherings the way that we do and why we try to center everything we do here uh, and everything about our life together as a church around Jesus. And so here's what we're going to see this morning in this passage, real simple. Uh, Jesus makes himself known to us through the scriptures and through the supper. And so let's look at this together now. Luke chapter 24, we're going to look at verses 13 through 35. So starting in verse 13, the very word of Christ to us today, it speaks to us like this. It says, that very day... Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see." And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as, he, as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. 
They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So the first thing we see in this passage uh, is that we see Jesus in the scriptures. And so this is the same day that Jesus has risen uh, from the dead. If you were with us last week, we walked through the first 12 verses of this chapter of Luke 24. And so at this point, uh, the women have gone to the tomb. They've seen that the tomb was empty. Peter has gone to and has seen that the tomb is empty, that Jesus's body is not there. And they've had angels appear to them and say that Jesus is risen from the dead, but no one has yet seen Jesus. And so it's later on that same day, on this Sunday, that two uh, other disciples are kind of walking on this road towards a place called Emmaus when Jesus comes up uh, and begins to walk with them, but he prevents them uh, from being able to recognize him at, at, at just this moment. And so they're having this conversation, Jesus kind of playing dumb a little bit. He's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And one of them's like, dude, have you been living under a rock? Like, are you the only person that doesn't know what just happened this weekend? Uh, and Jesus, you've got to kind of imagine with a little bit of a smirk on his face, is like, no, I haven't heard anything about it. Like, what, what happened this weekend? And so they tell him. They say, Jesus, this man Jesus, he was a prophet who was mighty before God in both word and deed. He did all these miracles. He healed all these people. Uh, he was incredible. He taught the people, and his teachings were amazing. And we really thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. We really thought that he might even be the Messiah, the one who would establish God's kingdom on earth and save us. But, but the religious leaders handed him over to the Romans, and the Romans crucified him and put him to death, so he couldn't have been the one. But, but something strange happened this morning. Some of the women who were with us went to the tomb to anoint his body for burial, but when they got to the tomb, they found the stone of the tomb rolled away, and his body was not there. Uh, some of the men went to go check this out as well, and, and when they went to the tomb, they found that, yes, it was true. Uh, the stone had been rolled away, and Jesus was not there, and no one has seen him. And look at how Jesus responds to them again in verse 25. It says, He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so he's like, guys, you, you should have seen this. The Old Testament was telling you. Didn't you see where it said that the Messiah was going to have to suffer before he entered into the glory of his kingdom? Uh, it's kind of like if you've seen the movie Sandlot. Uh, it's kind of like when Benny knocks the cover off the baseball so they're not going to be able to play anymore. And so uh, Smalls runs back home and he goes into his dad's trophy room and he takes his dad's baseball that had been signed by Babe Ruth uh, for them to play with. And so as they're playing with this baseball, Smalls hits it over the fence into the beast yard, which means that they're not going to be able to get this ball back. Uh, so he starts freaking out about this, and he's like, no, you guys don't understand. We have to get this ball back. Someone signed it and gave it to my dad. And, and so they all ask him, like, where did your dad get this ball? And finally he says, some lady gave it to him. Yeah, she even signed her name on it too. Some lady named Ruth. 
Baby Ruth. And of course, all the boys freak out and they're like, Babe Ruth? And he's like, yeah, you guys keep talking about her. Who is she? And they say, he's the king of crash. He's the sultan of swat. He's the colossus of clout. He's the colossus of clout. He's the great bambino. And in that moment, it all kind of clicks for him. He's like, oh my gosh, you mean that's the same guy? Listen, that's what's really going on here. You see, these disciples, they had a category for a Messiah who would be a conquering king, who would crush God's enemies and establish God's kingdom on earth and rule over everybody. They didn't have a category who would be for a Messiah who would suffer and die, and that would be the way he would accomplish these things. They never put these passages about a king who would reign and a servant who would suffer together but, but Jesus is walking them through all these passages about a king who would reign and establish God's kingdom and a suffering servant who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. And he's pointing them out and he's saying, look, it's the same guy. It's me. This is how I accomplish victory. This is how I establish God's kingdom on earth through my death and through my resurrection. And and, and notice, it says that Jesus tells them that they were slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken, meaning they should have seen this. Like, it was really in there. He is really in there. They just missed it. And, And so verse 27 tells us that beginning with Moses, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament, and then all the prophets, meaning the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus walks them through this kind of epic Bible study and shows them how the entire Old Testament is about him. He probably starts in Genesis, and he's like, creation, yep, that's about me, Adam. Look, here I am, uh, Noah and the flood. Oh, look, I found myself there too. Abraham, once again, it's me, and on and on and on he goes. And listen, this is why we are so passionate about preaching Jesus every week from every text of Scripture, because this is how Jesus taught the Bible. Like, it's about him. This is what Jesus says the Bible is about, that it's about him. And if Jesus says the Bible is about Jesus, I think we should probably take his word for it. I mean, it is his word, after all, if you know what I'm saying. And so notice again in verse 27, it says that Jesus interprets for them, meaning he brings out the meaning of these passages uh, for them by showing how all of these passages were about him. You see, these disciples, they, they had grown up as part of the people of God. They, they knew their Bibles. They knew the stories of the Old Testament. What they didn't have was the, the centerpiece, the framework that puts everything together, the kind of missing puzzle piece that makes everything else fall into place, and that's what Jesus provides for him there. Jesus gives us the key to understand the Old Testament here. The Old Testament is about the sufferings and the glories of the Messiah. It's about his death and his resurrection. That's the key to understand it. That's the puzzle piece that makes everything else fall into place and fit together the way it's supposed to. That's what helps you understand. Uh, Similar to these disciples, I I grew up in church and I knew the stories of the Bible. I I knew the Old Testament, but I didn't know how to fit it all together and why these things even matter. And and so I thought the Bible was really kind of a a, a book of rules to follow and commands to keep and good moral people to kind of try to emulate and be like, uh, which made me treat my relationship with God like a transaction where I felt like if I was doing good, then God was happy with me and owed me good things in return. 
Uh, but if I was doing bad and I wasn't being faithful, God was probably angry with me and disappointed in me. And, and so I was prideful when I thought I was doing well and anxious and fearful when I thought I wasn't. But my entire relationship with God was all about me, what I was doing, if I was being obedient enough, if I was being faithful. But listen, seeing Jesus in all the scriptures has absolutely changed everything for me. To, to be able to look at this book and know, man, this isn't a bunch of rules. This is a book about Jesus. This isn't a book about what I have to do for God to make God like me. This is a book about what God has done to rescue me in Jesus. This is God on page after page after page just displaying his love for me and his rescue plan for me in Jesus, how he was moving to save me and pursuing me even when I wanted nothing to do with him. It'll change everything when you read the Bible this way. The Bible is all about Jesus. He is the point. It does not make sense without him. Now, we're going to come back in a little bit and, and talk practically about how we do this, how we see how the whole Bible is about uh, Jesus. But before we do that, the next thing we see in this passage is that Jesus, we also see him in the supper. And so as Jesus continues giving this epic Bible study to these disciples on the road to Emmaus, verse 28 tells us that after a while, uh, they get close to the place where they were traveling. And so Jesus kind of acts like he's going to walk on farther, keep walking past them. And so they beg him to stay and come have a meal with them. And he does. And so he goes into the house and has a meal with them. Uh, and at this meal, even though he's really their guest, uh, he really becomes the host, and he takes this bread, and he breaks it, and he blesses it, and he gives it to them. And the text tells us that once he does this, he opens their eyes so that they're able to see uh, that it's really Jesus. They recognize him for who he really is, and then he vanishes from their sight. He, he appears to the disciples later on in the chapter when they go back to Jerusalem. Uh, but when he vanishes from their sight, they turn to each other, and they're like, oh my gosh, Man, were our hearts not lighting up on the road when he was talking to us, when he was explaining the scriptures and showing us how they're all about him? Like, we, we see it now. It's all about Jesus. And so they go back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples about this. And when they get to Jerusalem, they, they tell them what happened and how Jesus made himself known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, Jesus is the one who opened their eyes and, and gave them the ability to see him for who he really is again, but the text is clear that he specifically uses this meal, this breaking of the bread, to do so. I think the reason why is because this probably reminded these disciples of what the apostles told them happened a few days ago at the Last Supper when Jesus instituted the new covenant in his blood and said, this is my body, this is my blood given for you. Like the, the breaking of the bread, Jesus makes himself known here because the breaking of the bread is a visual picture of the gospel, how Jesus' body would be broken and torn apart so that we could be put back together, so that we could be made whole, and so that our sins could be forgiven. And so listen, this is why we take the Lord's Supper every week, because Jesus makes himself known to us here. Um, growing up, I always heard people say that if we were to take communion every week, uh, it would lose its significance and just become kind of a dry, empty ritual for us. 
Uh, Now, nobody ever said that about singing or preaching, and nobody ever questioned why we do those things every week or if those might become an empty, dry ritual that lose all their significance. Uh, For some reason, it was always the Lord's Supper that was going to lose all its significance if we did it more than four times a year. And and listen, I'm not saying that that things can't become ritualistic and kind of empty. Anything we do can become ritualistic and empty and lose significance. But look, rituals and habits are not bad in and of themselves. We are a people who are largely formed and shaped by our habits and by the kind of ritual practices we continually give ourselves over to. And listen, the Christian life is not about learning more facts. It's not about accumulating more knowledge. It's about deeply and intimately knowing and walking with Jesus. And so the Lord's Supper is a gift that Jesus gives us as his church, not to give us more facts, to help us learn more facts, but to bring us back to the central fact, to communicate to us fresh the good news of his death and resurrection each and every week. Like we take this meal every week because we believe that Jesus, the risen Jesus, is really present with us in a special way through his spirit when we come together as a church and we have this meal. Like, we believe something significant is going on here that's deeper than you just learning a few more facts. And so, man, really, this, this passage really explains why we try to do so much of what we do. We, we really think it's kind of marching orders for us. This is why we, on the whole, preach through books of the Bible and try to open them up and explain them to you and show you how they're about Jesus. So in the hopes that uh, we would have this same experience of these disciples on the road, that Jesus would light our hearts up for himself as we see him in the scriptures, like, oh my gosh, look at Jesus. Look at him. Look at this. Look at how incredible he is. Look at how he loves me. Look at how he provides for me. Look at what he's doing to save me. That we do this, we take the Lord's Supper every week because Jesus makes himself known to us in his scriptures and in his supper. So that every week as we come together as a church, we might get the gospel put before our ears through the preaching of the word and might have it put before our eyes and on our taste buds through the Lord's Supper because this is where we see Jesus. You want to see the risen Jesus today And you see him in the scriptures and in the Lord's Supper, these things that we do together as a church each and every week. He makes himself known to us here. And so what I want us to do now is to really kind of dive practically into this. How how do we see Jesus in the Old Testament uh, so that we in the hopes might have the same experience uh, of some good heartburn uh, like the disciples on the road did? And so let me give you a few practical things. One, uh, if you're going to grow in your ability to see Jesus in the Old Testament, you just have to read your Bible a whole bunch. Um, I think sometimes we, and when I say we, I mean like preachers and Bible teachers. I'm saying myself included. I have done this. I think sometimes we uh, can do you a disservice and communicate in a way that almost implies that if you don't have formal training and a job that allows you to spend your time studying the Bible, Uh, you're never going to be able to really understand it. Uh, But here's the problem with that. God gave the Bible to his church as a gift to his church to know him through, and and you don't have time in the morning to sit down with your Bible and six commentaries trying to study through all of these, trying to get a word from God for your day. And even as a pastor, like, I don't have that time either. Like, I would imagine you just want to read your Bible and hear a word from God 
And so do I. And here's the good news. We can't. Like, listen, I wholeheartedly believe one of my primary jobs up here in preaching is to model for you and to help teach you how to better read and understand your Bible. And I take that so seriously, but, but hear me say with that, I don't have a leg up on you in understanding the Bible. Because the, the background information you need, kind of the context and stuff you need to really understand the Bible, it, it's really not that kind of historical and cultural backgrounds and context that you get from reading commentaries. It's the rest of the Bible. Like the background you need to understand the Bible is the Bible. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, towards the end of the Old Testament, the people of God, they go into exile. They're taken into exile by the nations of Assyria and Babylon. And in Isaiah chapter 11, real similar to Isaiah 35, what we read earlier, God promises uh, that he will once again, one day, make a highway through the sea and bring his people back to Zion, out of slavery, back into freedom. So if you're going to understand what Isaiah 11 is saying there, uh, you really don't need to know what the experience of slavery was like in Assyria and Babylon during that time period. Uh, you really don't even need to know where Assyria and Babylon were on a map. Uh, what you need to know is that this act of salvation will be like that first one, that this new exodus will be like that first exodus. So much of what the prophets are doing is just using earlier language and stories and phrases and concepts to give us categories to understand what God's going to do in the future and how he's going to save in the future, that this act of salvation will be like that first act of salvation, just even greater. I mean, think back to a few weeks ago when we looked at Jesus instituting the Last Supper, and when he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and he's doing this during the context of Passover. If you know the rest of your Bible, in that one phrase from Jesus, you have all the context that you need to know that, that Jesus is saying that his death and resurrection is going to be a new Passover. It's going to be a true, the true Passover that institutes the new and true exodus, that it's going to set us free from slavery to sin and death and bring us into the freedom of life with God, that he is the true Passover lamb, that he is the one who's accomplishing that. Like, that's all you would need to understand the context there. And so the more you'll read your Bible looking for these patterns and looking for uh, where the Bible has said something like this before, the more you'll be able to see Jesus, because what you need to see Jesus in the Bible uh, is the rest of the Bible. But then second, if you want to grow in being able to see Jesus in the Old Testament, uh, you've got to know the gospel. Um, one of the early church fathers, a guy named Origen, which I, I think is a pretty sweet name, uh, he had this phrase where he said, uh, Jesus, through the gospel, he made all things similar to the gospel. And, and what he meant by that is that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he kind of illumined, he lit up the Old Testament so that now we can see most clearly what it was most clearly about. And so as you grow to know more of the gospel story and the events of Jesus' incarnation and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension back to the Father, uh, the more you know that, you can go back to the Old Testament and see where the Old Testament pictures that, where maybe you wouldn't have been able to see it before, but now that Jesus has come, he has made it clear. In fact, I think the reason that we so often struggle to read the Old Testament is because we're not reading it in this way. We're not reading it through the lens of the gospel, reading it to see more of Jesus. 
Uh, for example, let's think about where all good and well-intentioned Bible reading plans go to die. Uh, the book of Leviticus, right? We all start out so well with that New Year's resolution that we're going to read through the Bible and we get through Genesis and we get through Exodus and then we perish in the wilderness in Leviticus and we just go back to the New Testament. Well, I, I think the reason we do that is because we get into the book of Leviticus and we read about all these rituals and sacrifices and high priests and the tabernacle and all of these things and and we know this doesn't apply to us directly anymore, like in the same way. There's no temple or tabernacle for us to go offer a sacrifice at. There's no priest that we can bring an animal to uh, for us to sacrifice. And so we read all of this stuff and we're like, like this is pointless. And, and listen, uh, if, if Leviticus is not about Jesus, I actually think that instinct is right. Like, why would we read it as Christians? Why is it even in our Bibles? What, what are we supposed to do with it? I mean, you realize we actually cannot directly obey the vast majority of the book of Leviticus, and so what are we supposed to do with it? Well, the only good option is to do with it what the New Testament authors did with it and to read it and see it as a book given by God to us to help us know and understand more of Jesus. You see, Jesus fulfilled and put an end to the sacrificial system and so now we go back to the book of Leviticus and we read and reread it to press deeper into that reality, to see more of how Jesus fulfilled it and more of how he made atonement and payment for us and more of how he's our great high priest and sacrifice. Like all those boring stories about priests and rituals and offerings and temples and tabernacles, then they'll actually help you press deeper into the gospel if you'll read them to see what they're most deeply about, which is Jesus. Because listen, just like the Lord's Supper, Bible reading is really not about you just learning more facts and information either. It's about communing with Jesus, having relationship and fellowship with Jesus in and through his word. And so the more you'll read his word to see the good news, who he is and what he's done, the more you'll be able to engage with fellowship with him in that. And so practically, I want to I give you some examples and some categories as to how uh, we see this. And so there's more than this, but I'll, I'll just give you three. Um, that we see Jesus through uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, through patterns in the Old Testament, uh, and through people in the Old Testament. How Baptist is that, right? Uh, but first, uh, we see Jesus through the prophecies of the Old Testament, like the one that Amy read from Isaiah 35 earlier in the gathering. Like all of these prophecies in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and the minor prophets about how God uh, would bring a new creation and a new exodus and a new covenant and he would restore and he would redeem and he would make all things new and the lame man would leap like a deer and jump for joy like Jesus fulfilled all of those things. He's the one that's bringing those things in as evidenced by him healing and working miracles. He's showing us that he's the one that's going to bring in that new creation and bring and make all things new. Or, or think about the Psalms that we read last Friday at our Good Friday gathering. Like when you read Psalm 22, for example, it reads as if David is literally standing at the foot of the cross, just kind of writing down moment by moment what's happening to Jesus as he dies on the cross, and yet he wrote that hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Like, seeing the way that Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies fills us with hope and trust in the faithfulness of God to always keep his word. And so we see Jesus in the prophecies of the Old Testament. We also see him in the patterns 
of the Old Testament. I'll just give you two. Uh, One, this pattern of suffering before glory that Jesus talks about here with the disciples. This is what we're going to see over and over in the life of Joseph, who is first thrown into a pit and then thrown into a prison before he is exalted to the right hand of the Pharaoh as second in command. Or, or think about David, who is anointed as the true king of Israel in 1 Samuel 16, but then spends years in exile on the run, fearing from his life because King Saul is trying to kill him. He, he does that for years before he uh, ascends to the throne and rightfully becomes the king. Or think about the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, the Jewish people, the people of God, are threatened with extinction, uh, but God raises up Esther and Mordecai to high places in the the Persian Empire so that he can preserve and protect his people from extinction. Like all of these patterns, this pattern of suffering before glory that we see so much in the Old Testament, it points us to Jesus who ultimately experienced the suffering of death before he entered into the glory of God of his resurrection. It points us to Jesus. Uh, The second uh, pattern we see in the Old Testament is this pattern of salvation through weakness. Uh, God accomplishing salvation through what looks like kind of foolish and weak ways. Uh, For example, think of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. I think you guys more than anyone else should be able to know that marching around a city and then playing instruments is an awful military strategy if you want to win a battle. Like, it's terrible. There's no like, oh, you know, it was really strategic because of this reason. No, like, it's just dumb. It's a dumb strategy unless God is going to fight for you and win the victory. Or or think about Gideon and his army. In the book of Judges, uh, God whittles down Gideon's army from 20,000 men to 300 men to go fight against an army of over 100,000 men. And, and some people will say, oh, well, you know, the 300 men that lapped up the water like a dog or kept their head up while they were drinking, that shows that they were the best warriors and they were going to be able to win this. And like, no, listen, this is hand-to-hand combat. There's no guns at this time period. I don't care if you have 300 Jason Bournes in your army, you're not going to defeat 100,000 men. You're not going to win that battle. Except Gideon and his army does. They really do. Why? Well, because God is showing us how he's going to accomplish our salvation through weakness, through what ultimately looks like foolishness. I mean, what could look dumber than the death of the Son of God as the means to accomplish salvation? But yet this is how God did it, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through what looks like an awful, dumb strategy. These patterns will point us to Jesus. And then finally, we see Jesus in the people of the Old Testament. Let me run through a few. First, think of Moses. Uh, Moses, the one that God uses to uh, deliver his people from slavery and and lead them into the freedom of life with God. Where have we heard that before? Where does that sound familiar from? Jesus, right? Because listen, like Moses, Jesus will be hunted down by a tyrannical ruler when he's a little baby. Uh, Both of them had an edict out that all the males under two should be put to death, but like Moses, God will protect Jesus from death. Like Moses and the Israelites, Jesus will grow up and then he will pass through the waters before he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Uh, Unlike Moses and the Israelites, he won't fail in the desert. 
And like Moses, uh, he will deliver God's people and be used of God to lead them into freedom. But unlike Moses, he will accomplish this exodus by his own death and resurrection. And because Jesus is the true Moses, he's better than Moses, we can know that our sin and our death uh, and our slavery to it really has been dealt with and that we really do get to know the freedom of life with God. Or or second, think of Samson. At the end of Samson's life, uh, he's captured and bound. They gouge his eyes out, uh, and then they parade him before uh, the Philistines, uh, the Gentiles, for sport and mock him. Uh, And they tie him up at this party and mock him in front of everybody uh, for sport. And then uh, uh, Samson says to let him stretch out his arms and feel the pillars that the house is resting on. And when he does that, he pushes the pillars and breaks them and brings the whole house down and kills everybody in the house, all the Philistines, and sets the Israelites free from the rule of the Philistines. And the text in Judges tells us that the people that Samson killed at his death were more than the people that he ever killed during his life. Well, like Samson... Uh, Jesus was betrayed by somebody close to him. And and like Samson, Jesus was bound and captured and then handed over to the Gentiles. And and like Samson, uh, he was paraded before the Gentiles for sport. The Roman soldiers blindfolded him and hit him and said, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who is it that's hitting you? Like Uh, Samson, Jesus, was put on display for the mocking and entertainment of the Gentiles. And like Samson, Jesus freely gave up his life and died with his arms stretched out. And like Samson, Jesus' greatest act of deliverance was in his death. But unlike Samson, the people that Jesus saved through his death were more than the people that he ever saved during his life. He is the true deliverer. Or think of David. David, this little runt shepherd boy, in 1 Samuel 17, he goes to battle against Goliath, the giant and champion of the Philistine army. And 1 Samuel 17 tells us that this is a representative battle, meaning it's one-on-one, David versus Goliath, and whoever wins, the victory is given to their whole people. So if David defeats Goliath, all the Israelites get to share in that victory over Goliath and the Philistines. And so David does this. He defeats Goliath with just a sling and a stone with what looks like foolish, weak means. But not only does he do that, he takes Goliath's sword and he cuts Goliath's head off with his own sword. Well, this is what Jesus did to the devil. You see, Jesus fought the ultimate battle against our sin and our death and the devil. And just like David, he defeated the devil with the devil's own weapon, death. And in his death, he defeated and conquered death and rose from the dead to accomplish the victory. And because he is our representative and our champion who has won that battle for us, we get to share in his victory. Everything that is his becomes ours. We get to share in it. Or or finally, think about Daniel and the lion's den. All the leaders of the king's court are jealous of Daniel But they can't get any charges to stick against him. So they have the king make up a new edict that if anybody bows down to or prays to or worships another god besides the king for the next 30 days, they'll be thrown into the den of lions. 
Well, this happens. Daniel prays to his God, the God of Israel, and they throw him into the lion's den, and they put a stone over the mouth of the lion's den, and they leave him in there overnight. But when they come in the morning and roll the stone away, uh, Daniel is unharmed. God protected and preserved him and shut the mouths of the lions. Well, like Daniel, uh, Jesus, no charges would stick against them. They had to drum up false charges to get him arrested. And like Daniel, Jesus was arrested while he was praying to God. And like Daniel, uh, the ruler wanted, thought he was innocent and wanted to set him free, but couldn't. And, and like Daniel, Jesus was thrown into a tomb with a stone rolled over the mouth of it. They made it as secure as they can. In Psalm 22, the psalmist compares death to the attack of a lion uh, but just like Daniel, uh, Jesus was not harmed by the mouths of the lions. God preserved and protected him from that. And just like Daniel, but better than Daniel, when they came in the morning and found the stone rolled away, Jesus had come out of the tomb unharmed, better than he was before, risen from the dead. Uh, the lion of death could not devour him because God raised him from the dead. And just like Daniel, when this happened, a commission was given to take this good news to all the nations so that all the nations would know that this God is the true God. Listen, the entire Bible is about Jesus. He's the point. It's all about him. But Jesus doesn't just want to give us a Bible study with this. Just like the story in Daniel, he calls us to respond. He's not just giving us a Bible study here. He's giving us a message and a mission. Listen to what he says at the end of the chapter in verse 44. It says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus is risen from the dead, the conqueror of sin and death. And because he is risen from the dead, the call on our lives is to take this good news, to take the gospel to the nations. And so let's do this. Let's take the good news to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, and to the nations, showing them how all of the Bible and all of life is about the good news of Jesus so that they might get in on it too, so that they might be able to come to know him too, so that they can see him too. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank you for this good news that the entire Bible is not about what we have to do for you, but about what you have done for us. Thank you that any page we open to in this book, Old or New Testament, we will read about you. We will see you. We will hear you because this is all about you. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would give us, by your grace, this experience uh, that the disciples had on the road, of this uh, heartburn, of seeing you in the Scriptures. Would you light up our hearts with that good news? And, Jesus, would you do this in us? Would you make us a people who 
are anxious to take this message to the nations and to engage in the mission you've called us to, to bring other people in so that other people might see how good and glorious you are. Jesus, please do it among us as a people. Make us a people who are shaped by you. In your name, amen.